Good morning. If you're not excited, I'm going to be mad. No, okay. I'm excited. I was like, there's no, actually, I have no, no counter for that, so I better stop. Okay, what Sunday is it? Oh, I like how enthusiastic that was said. Yes, Resurrection Sunday. I'm not going to lie, I'm probably going to lose my voice. I sang too much uh, just then. I get excited about the resurrection, and I think you do too, uh, because it's a big deal. So we're going to unpack the resurrection this morning, and to do that, we're actually going to turn to 2 Corinthians. So we're starting 2 Corinthians next week. You're getting a foretaste of 2 Corinthians today. This is like a trailer for the series that we're going to be doing, but we're going to be talking about the resurrection today. So as you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you're looking for verse 7, uh, let's just think about the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is unfortunately not consistent, um, especially across this country. You get a lot of different things. You think about what exactly Christianity teaches. What's our, our base teaching? If we just looked at kind of public Christianity, maybe a televangelist Christianity, sort of this give your money to the preacher on stage who has his bling so he can buy more bling, that version of Christianity, sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Let's unpack the, the basics of that at the moment. So in the Old Testament, there's a very clear principle. God gave his people. If you remember, the Israelites were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They were chosen to be set apart and display God's glory to the nations, ultimately even God's blessing to the nations. And there was this equivalency principle, basically, that they operated under in that covenant, in their land. If they obeyed the law, if they kept the Ten Commandments, if they kept truly the 613 commandments of that old covenant, if they did that, what did God promise he would do in return? He would pour out his blessing. If they didn't obey the commandments, then he would, he would curse them. Now, we know if you've studied the Old Testament, if you've, you don't even have to study, you just read some of the Old Testament, you know how that usually played out. Usually there's more cursing than there is blessing. Now, we get to the New Testament and we think, oh man, even greater blessing has come. It's very easy to sell a message that says, if you obey God, if you jump through these hoops, if you honor him, if you tithe, if you go to church, if you read your Bible, if you say a blessing before you eat your meal, you know, the calories disappear. We have all sorts of positive truths, positive statements. If we jump through these hoops, we guarantee that there will be blessing before the Lord. Now, you see how this works out. We can then, if that's the case, if the amount of blessing I receive is an indicator of how rightly I have lived, then if someone lives rightly, how can we pick them out in the crowd? They're the most blessed people in the room, right? They pull up in the brand new car, you know, every six months. They, they have the best clothes. They have the best health. They have the best relationships. We start to build this metric for, well, if blessing is directly tied to obedience, then certainly we could look at whether or not you are blessed and determine whether or not you are legitimate. So, you know, if you're a televangelist, you need a new jet, right? Because the new jet proves you're God's man. And consequently, if something bad happens in your life, we have an easy out. Anytime we just knew God was going to answer this prayer, and then he doesn't answer the prayer the way we wanted him to, things go to pot in our lives, it all messes up, we can step back and say, well, brother, sister, you just didn't have enough faith. 
I mean, I have faith, and look what God has done for me, right? That becomes our metric. Same problem happened in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. So Paul's writing 2 Corinthians. We'll get into the history, all that next week, so this is part of the trailer. But he's having to deal with a lot in his ministry, the fact that people don't like him. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Or someone did not every day. Wow. Okay, well, some of us, you know, admit that. Some of us don't admit that. This happens, right? And so Paul, because of his work as an evangelist, his work as a disciple maker, his work as a missionary, he encounters this problem a lot, and his opponents who come from more of a prosperity background, from more of a background that says you obey, you get blessed, period. That's how the system works. Paul, he, he had a negative in that regard because his opponents, the people who didn't like him, would look at his life and say, man, Paul gets on a boat, it's going to shipwreck. You know, Paul goes to a town, there's going to be a riot. Paul goes anywhere, like he's going to get beat up. They stoned him to death one time and he didn't die. If you know anything about stoning, you can imagine what that process looked like. Like Paul goes everywhere and everything goes wrong. So an accusation could be made. Well, Paul must not be legit because if God was blessing it, you know, the doors would just open. The path would be easy. And if God was behind it, he wouldn't have all this resistance. If God was behind it, you know, there would be a hedge of protection around his ministry. Nobody who was with him would get injured. Nobody would get beaten in front of everyone, but that's what's happening with the Apostle Paul. So guys, do you want to trust what the Apostle Paul says, or do you want to trust these guys who got his blessing? You see how the argument works? Paul's having to fight this, and he had a lot of tension with the particular church he's writing to, Corinth, the church in Greece. He's writing to them, and he's having to defend himself a lot because there's been so much controversy, and what we're going to do is use his answer to the question and see how both the crucifixion and the resurrection come together and give us our worldview. You may not realize this, but Christianity is built around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the core piece of our doctrine. It's the center tenets of everything we believe. It's all it either is in that or supplies our doctrine for how we put it together. Every piece of doctrine finds its way in the resurrection and in the crucifixion. It's the centerpiece. That's why we worship on Sunday, the day he rose from the dead. And so we're going to look at that framework. We're going to see how Paul used that framework to defend himself. And then hopefully we'll walk away with a gospel-oriented framework, death and resurrection, that will show us what life for Christians should look like. So you see the tension. Does God bless us with good things? Well, yeah. But is there a direct connection between if we obey, he blesses. If we disobey, he curses. We kind of want to say yeah. But we recognize that, well, there's people who disobey that get blessed. And there's people who obey that seemingly get cursed. So Paul is going to answer this question for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're picking up in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, a jar of clay is made of what material? Clay. Very good. All right, so it's a jar and it's made of clay. So, what's the difference between, say, a jar made of clay and a jar made of, you know, cast iron? One is fragile, one, you know, you can kill someone with, right? They're not the same. So there's this jar of clay, and according to this verse, there's a treasure 
in the jar of clay. So we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now let's unpack that word power. We, we mentioned this last week, but for those of you who weren't here, the power of God throughout the New Testament is almost always a direct reference to what God did in the resurrection. We can connect the dots a lot of different places in Scripture, but there's a direct relationship between the word power and the idea of resurrection. Of course, the modern word that we get from the Greek word for power is dynamite, but they didn't have dynamite back then, so they're obviously not thinking about dynamite when they use that word, but we can take that concept, that explosion, and rather than thinking of a stick of dynamite, think of the empty tomb and Jesus exploding out of that tomb, the power of the resurrection exploding into this age, into our world, into our hearts right now. So that's the power. So Paul's saying we have jars of clay. Why do we have jars of clay? So that the surpassing power can be shown to belong to God and not to us. Think about this. If you have something really, 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 really special in a jar of clay and you drop the jar, what do you see? You get to see what's inside the jar. Because if you drop the jar, that's breaking. And so the jar's not special, but what's special? The thing in the jar. Paul's saying, I'm a jar. You're a jar. Timothy, Titus, Savannah, my, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, they're, they're clay jars. And the surpassing power of God is in that jar. In verse 8, see, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So in all of those cases, something bad happens, but it's got a limit. It can't go too far. Jesus has conquered death. He's conquered sin. It, you can't be defeated, but your jar can be broken. And all it does is reveal what's inside. What are they doing? Verse 10, they're always carrying in the body, so they're talking about the flesh, the death of Jesus Christ. So everywhere they go, people look at them and say, oh yeah, Jesus suffered. You see the connection? Everywhere the disciples go, everywhere Paul especially goes, and people beat him, people curse him, people reject him, people stab him in the back, they riot against him, they try to stone him to death, he has a shipwreck. No matter what happens to Paul, all of these things happen because the death of Jesus is symbolized in that, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So both the death and the life of Jesus are manifested in our bodies. So the jar of clay is the illustration. The jar of clay breaks. That's the death of Christ. But what do you see inside the jar? The surpassing power of the glory of God in the gospel. It's the resurrection. So in us, Paul is saying, we should be able to see both the death and suffering of Christ and his resurrection. That's what we're getting at. So if you're in the outline, you want to fill this out, take notes. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the believer's guide to life. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the believer's guide to life. So if that makes sense to you at the end, we've succeeded. This is what Paul is trying to argue. We're going to unpack that. So the death and resurrection of Jesus is the believer's guide to life. So let's just read through the rest of this chapter, and I want you to see what's happening. For we who live are always be, being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested 
in our mortal flesh. So both the death and the life, both the crucifixion and the resurrection are being manifest, being displayed in the apostles and ultimately in us. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. All right, so just a quick background. Uh, We talk about the resurrection a lot, but to make sure we all follow the scenario, the biblical system for how everything ends is built around one concept. Now, if you ask this question modern, a lot of people would say rapture, tribulation, uh, all these different things. The main biblical building block, the pillar of the future that's coming, everything else builds around this moment, is the future resurrection. And so really in the Bible, when it says the resurrection, it's usually not talking about Jesus. It's talking about the thing at the end where we, as believers in God, believers specifically in Christ, raise from the dead bodily. But what did Jesus do? He didn't wait till then to do that. When did Jesus raise from the dead? From our vantage point almost 2,000 years ago, he did it in the middle of human history. He bodily raises from the dead, not like Lazarus. Where's Lazarus today? He's dead. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus rose to permanent new life. By definition, a resurrected body cannot die. That's what Jesus did. And so we live, this is very important that you connect these dots, we live between the resurrections. Jesus' resurrection versus our future bodily resurrection. So Paul is saying, knowing that he who raised Jesus will also raise us. You see the connection? It's a very important framework for all believers to operate in. So the God who raised Jesus is eventually going to raise us. All right, let's keep going. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, right now they're experiencing on their outer selves, what? Affliction. They're wasting away. There's suffering. What they're trying to show us, what Paul is trying to live and embody, is we live the crucifixion until we get to live the resurrection. Kind of a sequence to it. Jesus did it in that order. He was crucified. He was humbled, then exalted. We will walk the crucifixion life and then the resurrected life. So there's this distance, the separation between these two things is God's ultimate plan to heal your body. Well, in the end, yes. God is going to heal us all. We'll all be perfectly well, perfectly sane, perfectly sinless, perfectly everything on the other side, but not necessarily now. That's not part because we're embodying the crucifixion. So look at the next blank in your outline. So we suffer because Jesus suffered. So if we want to be Christ-like, we're supposed to be like him in his crucifixion. I am crucified with Christ. 
longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So therefore, the more we suffer, the more we are like Jesus. You see that? The more we suffer, the more we are like Jesus. So suffering now, future resurrection later. Now to further make sense of that, let's keep going in 2 Corinthians. Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Interesting piece of theology here. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, interesting lingo. The tent that we currently live in is the flesh. We live here, but we have a house up there when we die. But verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Have you ever, just think about it. I don't know, anybody daydream? I'm a really bad daydreamer. Like, I, I just want somebody to invent an easy button. Is that lazy of me? I just look at situations like, I just wish I could snap my fingers, and that would be fine. You ever think that about your health? I just wish I could snap my fingers. I, I groan in this body. I don't know if you groan in your body. I groan in my body, okay? It's getting, parts of it aren't working like it used to. Parts of yours might not, but you're groaning in this body. Maybe you're suffering in some intangible way. Maybe it's a psychological way. Maybe it's depression, anxiety. We groan in this body, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. All right, four, while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Now, this, if you get this next piece, you understand the doctrine of resurrection. Not that we would be unclothed. All right, so what are we wearing right now? The, the current earthly tent. We could call it our current mortal bodies. That's, that's what I'm wearing. Paul says we're longing to wear something else. Not that we would take that off and be naked, though. That's a lot of people's view of heaven, right? This robe of flesh. I'll drop and rise. Gain the everlasting prize and sing while passing through the air. Farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. I love that song, but that verse is absolutely not biblical. All right, that's not what he's saying. We're not going to take that robe off and ascend into the clouds. We don't want to be unclothed. What do we want to do? We want to be further clothed. I don't want to take my clothes off. I want to get a new pair of clothes. Make sense? You with me? I know it's a weird illustration, but it's Paul's illustration, okay? So we're taking that robe off, putting a different robe on so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. What is mortal goes away. What is life gets put on. Those are the bookends. Crucifixion, resurrection. We're looking forward to tangible, physical, fleshly life. In the future, this is the glory of our inheritance in the saints. This is what we get to look forward to. Now, so what we've done at this point is we've taken the prosperity gospel and we've said, nope, but say that's a spectrum. Prosperity gospel is over here. We can easily slide too far the other direction. Just think about it. Based on everything I've said so far, rather than you know, blessing equals righteousness, we could create a system that says suffering equals righteousness. And therefore, if you have any blessing at all, you know, if you have a new car, 
It's not a sign that God's blessed you. It's a sign that you're a horrible person. <laughs> Nobody chuckled. That was supposed to be a joke. Okay, everybody's nervous. Like, is he saying that? Oh, no. No, okay, all right. One was wrong. Let me be clear. The other side of the spectrum is also incorrect. Right? I've skipped over intentionally a piece of the puzzle so that we can bring it back to the center. So go back up to verse 16 in chapter 4. Right, so we do not lose heart. Well, why would he lose heart? Well, he's got all this suffering. He's, he's shipwrecked. He's imprisoned. He's, he's beaten. He's got people that stab him in the back, people that want him dead. He's been rejected. He's been betrayed, all of these things. But he does not lose heart because though our outer self is wasting away, what happens to the inner self? It's being renewed day by day. I think I skipped a blank. Our physical bodies will be redeemed in the end. Um, that day will be more glorious than we can fathom. All right, next. Our inner selves enjoy the power of the resurrection day by day through the working of resurrection power. Throughout the New Testament, it's twice. In Ephesians, we see it in Philippians. We see it in Romans. We see this resurrection power of God doing a work inside us. The Bible says we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but because of his great love with which he loved us, he raised us up with him. The resurrection power is applied now. So you, do you embody the resurrection or the crucifixion right now? Both. That's why Paul could say we were struck down. But we're not destroyed. You can break my jar, but the only thing that happens when you break my jar is the glory of the resurrection shines brighter. Because this is our paradigm. Our inner selves enjoy the power of the res resurrection day by day. So jump over to verse 16 in, in chapter 5. From now on, therefore, we regard him, no, no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It's not that first earthly body. He's in the glorified new creation body. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jump down to chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and inflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness by the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the right, for the right and left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, unknown and yet well-known, dying yet behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You see, in the resurrection, we have both the crucifixion and the resurrected life overlapping one another at the same time. So is there pain and suffering now in this age? Tons of it. Is there joy and blessing and peace and love? Tons of it. We see both. There's so much going on right now that we get to enjoy. Now let's jump back. I know I'm going all over the place. Back to chapter 4, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction. 
light, momentary affliction. Now, what all goes into that category Paul just gave? Stonings, shipwrecks, sickness, persecution, physical suffering, mental suffering. Paul had a season of depression, possibly anxiety. He had a really dark time that he talks about. He just felt like he'd received the sentence of death spiritually. All of that stuff, what's he say? This light, momentary affliction. So no matter how great your suffering is, compared to what's coming, it's, it's light. Compared to what's coming, it's short. But what's he say? It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So last blank, our present lives prepare us to experience the glory which is coming. Our present lives prepare us to experience the glory which is coming. Perhaps my favorite way this is expressed is in Ephesians 2, 7. It says, so that in the coming ages, after God has saved us, he's redeemed us, he's taken us to the eternal kingdom, he's here, he's present, so that in that coming age, he might show to us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. So think about this. Have you ever had a moment where God spoke to you? Where you had a, you might call it a revelation, had an epiphany, had that moment where you tasted and saw that the Lord was good. Maybe it was in a worship song. Maybe it was in a sermon. Maybe it was in a quiet time. Maybe it was in an act of compassion. Maybe it was in a sunset. You had that moment. Eternity will be a stream unceasingly of those moments. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what right now is preparing us for. There's a direct connection between the crucifixion and the resurrection, not just in theology, but in your life, because you are a jar of clay. And the only way for that jar of clay to truly, in its best sense, reveal the light is to have some suffering. Everything we experience, every pain, every trial, every joy is designed to prepare you to experience a joy that is beyond your comprehension. So as we wrap this up, we actually want to embody this this morning and and put some flesh on it. And so we're going to take Lord's Supper together. And when we think about the Lord's Supper, it does, in a very direct way, emphasize the crucifixion. Because we take the body of Christ, which is broken, and we take the, the wine, which represents the blood of Christ that was poured out, the blood of the new covenant, both of which happen on the cross. But is there a resurrection element to our partaking of the Lord's Supper? There actually is. When Jesus originally instituted this supper, you can go see this in Matthew chapter 26. He instituted the supper. He broke the bread, says, this is my body. It was given for you. Then he gave them the wine, says, this represents the blood of the new covenant. And then after he's given them this feast to partake of, he closes out the ceremony by saying, I'm not going to partake of this again until we do it together in the kingdom. Now think about this. So does that mean the Lord's Supper is designed to look back at the cross or to look forward to his coming? It 
it's a preparatory feast. We have to think about the past, but we think about the past specifically to look forward, which is why when Paul gives us instructions for it, he says every time we take this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there is a direct connection between both the crucifixion and the resurrection in the Lord's Supper. And so as we take this meal together, we are celebrating the death of Christ for us. We are celebrating the blood of Christ for us. We're celebrating the very essence of salvation, but with a view toward the eternal weight of glory that will make everything we do right now seem like a light, momentary affliction. So we're going to declare the victory of the name of Christ over the entire timeline when we take this Lord's Supper together. There's a sense in which you could call taking this meal together a declaration of war. We are declaring the death, the power of the gospel every time we take it together. Now, when we do this, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves. The person examined himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're going to take a few moments of silence while they're finishing up, passing it around. I want you to examine your heart. We're not just looking for sin. You'll find that. We're looking for repentance. As we look into our hearts, is our attitude towards sin, is our attitude towards God one of repentance? If it's not, spend some time in confession. Spend some time praying to the Lord, confessing and repenting of sin. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our trespasses. Let's praise his name. Let's examine our hearts. Let's take a moment of silence and do this together. Father, we gather in the name of Christ, our Savior, because of his crucifixion, because you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We want to take a meal together that shows we have become your righteousness. As the body was broken for us, as his blood was poured out, our sin has been conquered. Your wrath has been satisfied. Your power has been unleashed. So, fathers, we take communion together as we celebrate the victory of the cross, and we anticipate the coming of the resurrection. God, I pray that this meal would have a special significance for us today, that we would taste and see that you are good in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Paul says, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you. that The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And in so doing, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the victory in the name of Jesus. Let's sing a chorus together.